Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. It's good to have everyone back. Hi, John. How are you doing today? What's going on, man? It's uh, early Saturday morning, and uh, I'm still getting my first coffee in me. How about you? I'm already several coffees deep, so the uh, the joys of you know waking up early with young kids. Although I'm not home today, so I can't use them as an excuse. I just my body clock is such that even when I'm away, I think it's tough to sleep in. Yeah, I uh, sit up late eating Oreos, so. That's uh, that is yeah. a, a good reason to stay up late. That sounds like a dad life right there. Yeah, especially when they're double stuff. Don't go with the regulars anymore. <laughs> life isn't the same with those. You can't go back once you go double. Mm-mm. All right. Well, we've got a good episode today. We're going to talk about student precepting. But as we've been doing before we get into it, John, anything fun going on professionally? Oh, professionally. Um, there's plenty happening. Let me tell you, we I've got a client that I've been working with recently. We're trying to expand some of their diabetes programs and it's finally going into full motion. We're seeing some results. And we're seeing people get treated earlier, having uh, uh, faster outcomes, our value-based outcomes, uh, probably, hopefully more significant than we've ever seen before. So uh, I'll be working with a student who's going to be finishing their capstone for their master's in public health. And we're hoping to take that information and expand it out. Um, it's just coming back from the IRB right now. Uh, we think it's going to be approved. And hopefully this will be just the beginning to increasing patient outcomes uh, from baseline. So more to come on that. This is more the the outside of it. But I'm, I'm excited to see Very some cool. outcomes. Yeah. This is through your, uh, your primary employment or this is through your consulting? No, yeah, this is through consulting. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, you got to find some ways to, I mean, nobody asked for this, but you find the opportunities that your clients or anybody around you in your network have to pique your interest or just, I mean, I think I really did come into this job or business as a pharmacist to help others. So when you find the, the opportunities, you take them and just see where it goes. So I would nobody asked for this, but there's opportunity to better some people's lives. And so I don't know, everybody's willing to jump in. And the students said, yeah, let's, let's do this. I could use your help too. And so we'll see what happens with this. Very cool. I like that. I like that you tied in uh use of students. I think that'll be good. We'll circle mm. back around to that. How can you use students to, to be more efficient in projects? But so here I'll get, I'll stick with the student theme since we're going to talk about precepting today. So some fun professional updates for me. I got nominated by one of the universities where I'm on faculty as preceptor of the year. Ooh. So I'll do, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a, a humble brag in, uh, in mountain climbing, they call it spray where you, your ego, you kind of spray out your compliments to yourself. So I guess I'll do some spray <laughs> trying to be young and hip <laughs> or, inappro- in a, or inappropriate for a professional podcast. But yeah, keep your spray. spray yeah, right. man, you off, don't want spray. Okay. No. Yeah. So yeah, so preceptor of the year, and uh, they do a white coat ceremony at the start of the academic year for the next class, the next cohort. So I mm-hmm. apparently, the preceptor of the year gives a keynote speech to the incoming class at the white coat ceremony. So this will be fun. Obviously, I, I do lots of public speaking, so that part is 
not intimidating, but I've never given a, a speech like at a graduation or anything. So I got to figure out, you know, the corny things to know, things that I wish I knew when I was a student or, or all of that and put together a nice little compact speech for that. What, did you, did they give you a plaque? Uh, I, I'm assuming they will at the ceremony, but no, mm-hmm. I haven't received anything yet. So nobody came and took pictures with you. Yeah. yeah, I've already got it on my CV though. So you better believe I updated that real quick. Yep, perspective, <laughs> uh, perspective preceptor of the year. <laughs> right. Anticipated date. <laughs> <laughs> Participation trophy preceptor of the year. Nice. Yeah, I haven't got yeah. one of those yet. So um. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny because, like, obviously, you know, it, it you know it doesn't come with pay. It doesn't necessarily really do anything. But you reach a stage of your career where little stuff like that, it's kind of cool. I think teaching is so gratifying. So um, mm-hmm. being recognized for for teaching, I think, is a, a nice little feather in the cap. Yeah, I, I would say so. It's when you do see success, uh, whether in recognition for what you've been able to accomplish or when you see success success when your students um, climb even above you it's Mm -hmm. uh, really cool to see that for sure well i think that's as good of a segue as we'll get so today we're going to talk about precepting john you picked this topic tell me why are you so darn passionate about precepting i I think it started with mentorship actually i started reading some books when i first started my career out and the first book i read was by Ken Blanchard. He is well known for the One Minute Manager. Um, it was really popular back in the late '80s, early '90s, but still very relevant today. He had a, a few books that he partnered with other folks on. One of them was One Minute Mentor, and it will be in the show notes uh, links where you can find it. But there are plenty of books out there. I think maybe at the time I just looked up randomly Googled top mentorship books and I was starting to mentor and starting to precept. And I had my own mentor at the time and thought, you know, reading this book, there is such an opportunity to better yourself and help somebody else out as well. You're not going to continue to be passionate about precepting or mentoring unless you are getting something out of it as well. And I think some of the literature that maybe we can get to at some point talks about this, where there has to be some uh, gratification on your end or some development on your end, as well as the students to actually be successful or it's going to fizzle out. So, yeah, I read this book and I was like, okay, man, let's take on some more students. I asked uh, some folks at my at my job at the time. Uh, and I talked to the school I was involved in, got plenty of opportunities, took on lots of students, and I've had my successes. And I've definitely had my, <laughs> I, I, I won't say failures, because we usually try not to say that uh, in our careers, we say opportunities. So I saw my opportunities to grow as a mentor. It's something you can learn and develop. So I just think it's important because maybe you agree with me, Mike, where you look back and you can clearly tell me who some of the best mentors or preceptors were rolls right off your tongue, best experiences you've ever had, right? Um, We find our passions or at least find assistance in developing our passions through mentors. 
I didn't know some of the passions I had until I found a really good rotation when I was in grad school. It's a great way to develop the next generation of the uh, healthcare professionals. And I think it's also important in developing and understanding yourself. Because once you start having to teach somebody else, you start reflecting on your own personal journey. Mm. Uh, you figure out your goals, you figure out your dreams, uh, you find your opportunities to improve uh, in educating a, those uh, others, whether it's colleagues or students or even those above you. And you will increase your knowledge and your skill set because you're not going to just off the cuff tell somebody something that's only a um, suggestion, recommendation based on anecdotal evidence. Uh, in our fields, you are going to give them good background data. And if you have a great student too, they will challenge you and ask you, where did you find that? Um, I need the link for that. I need the, the study for that. But the BS that you can spew at people, because we know, I think as healthcare professionals, and you you can tell, I want to hear about your side of this too, but you know how to win an argument, whether you have information or not. You can bully anybody into any position by sounding confident, um, using the right language, and having some sort of evidence in literature. Even if you just say, well, I read this in this study in this place, blah, blah, blah. You can just spout it off. Nobody's probably going to question you on it. But I, I, don't, I don't think I could personally do that. I don't think you probably could do that either. I think if you're passionate about your job, you're challenged, you're going to have to give them actual answers with uh, evidence-based data to back it up. So, and, and saying all that, it's not just relaying what you already know in babysitting, uh, in mentorship and, uh, and preceptorship. I think it has a lot to do with verifying that you know what you're talking about and finding confidence that you have that information. And if you don't know, your student's going to ask you, uh, where did you find this? And you might not even know, you might have to go back and figure it out and send them the links. But uh, it's, a, it's a two-way street. I find it very valuable. Um, and it's going to spark passions in both me as a mentor or me as a mentee as well. Uh, if I have my own mentor, uh, it should be sparking passions on both sides of it, though. Whoever is being taught or mentored and the mentee or the teacher. I think it's a, a great way to figure out and collaborate where can we go from here? Yeah, um, I don't I, know I what agree. you find I, important, but I, I like how you kind of broke it down into s different categories of benefit for precepting. Because I, I agree that if you're not getting something out of it, then you know we can all be altruistic, and I think that's good. But um, I think if we define our careers purely through altruism, it, it leads to potential burnout or frustration. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and yes, I know that may sound cynical, but, you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is to help support professionals through their careers. And I, I think you do have to be careful and make sure that you are, you know, pursuing jobs where you're getting paid well, um, where you're doing things that are taking care of you. You know, it, we could all go do this as a volunteer and it would be incredibly gratifying, but it would also not pay the bills. It would also, uh, you know, maybe lead to some frustration. So I think having personal benefit can be good in that personal benefit can be many different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get paid by some of the schools where I precept and the pay is not a lot. So it's, in my opinion, it's not a motivating factor to do it. But the pay at least helps offset maybe the uh, reduced productivity um, that comes with teaching because you do, you know, if you're doing it right, you're going to take some extra time 
and maybe you can't see as many patients or maybe you need to take some time before or after the end of the day. Um, so I think there can be personal benefit that way. You also may get faculty appointment. I have you know faculty appointments at three of the schools where I teach and that can be immensely valuable. It gives you access to research databases through the library. It can give you access to you know maybe collaboration for projects with other faculty. Um, it attaches you to the alumni network. There's an incredible amount of um, resources that comes with faculty appointment. And most schools, depending on how many students you take, will offer some sort of clinical adjunct title if you're precepting for them on a regular basis or if you sign a contract and agree to precept. Are you reading my show notes right now, Mike? I know, right? No, Are no. You reading them? I think we're just on point. We both agree. God, this is good. But the other area that you said that I think is so spot on is when you precept, it makes you a better person, you know, as a clinician, because you need to stay up to date. My One of my favorite things, I, I like to be tough on my students. I, I want them to kind of be a little bit stressed when they go through a rotation with me and not in like the whole, you know, oh, it's medicine. So we're going to bully you and make you do scut work or anything like that. But I tell my students, you know, don't come to me and ask me a question unless you've worked really hard to find the answer yourself. Mm -hmm. Because I think as a student, one of the most important skill sets that you can learn on your clinical rotations is not how to memorize things, but rather how to find the the correct answer if you don't know it. Yes. And, and that, I think, as a preceptor can also make you a better clinician. Because if a student comes to you and says, you know, hey, does vitamin D actually improve depression? Mm -hmm. Well, let's look it up. You know, find me some meta-analyses, and then once you find them, bring them back to me, and we'll we'll break them down and, and analyze them ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to more research literacy for the student. It can make you, um, you know, more aware of recent research because it's very hard to keep up on all the updates in your field of medicine. So mm -hmm. having a student um, where you, you have this motivation to always stay fresh and on top of things can be really helpful. Yeah. Uh, I think what you're talking about with researching. So I remember as a kid... I would used to, if I didn't know what a word was, if I'm doing homework and I would go to my dad, my dad was very well read. Uh, he, he ended up finishing his engineering degree when I was very young. So I think he might've been in his thirties, but he was a forever learner. And I would go up to him and I'd say, okay, dad, what does this word mean? Um, dad, what is, what does onomatopoeia mean? You're like, <laughs> well, uh, did you look it up yet? Did you go to the Webster's Dictionary? Because this is before we really had internet. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was not as easy to find things. <clears throat> so he would make me go find the encyclopedia or our massive, massive Merriam-Webster uh, encyclo encyclopedia is a huge book. And if I said, no, well, I'm not telling you what it is. Go find out yourself. And I think that... Um, I think that that's, that's how we should be handling the students because when mm -hmm. you're in the real world, you're, you need to be okay with not knowing the right answer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a humbling thing and it's a professional thing though. It's, I think it's a professional skill to have to recognize what your limits are and not to be embarrassed when say a patient asks you a question, you don't have to have the answer at the top of your head. Uh, nobody's really expecting that except maybe, I mean, maybe as a mentor or a preceptor, they should have been, they should know this thing. And it's not a good, we'll probably get to that. Those, those answers, or those uh, stories, but unless they really should know what it is, um, 
you can just look it up. I'm finally starting to get very comfortable only over the last couple of years with saying, I don't know to a patient and saying, I, listen, I don't, I don't, that's an, that's an old medication or, Oh, I haven't, I haven't looked at this in a while. Give me a second. I'm going to go look it up. And what I've heard trend wise, and you, you can tell me if you've heard this at, at the faculty appointments you're at too, but we're talking about potentially having open book tests now. Mm-hmm. And open notes test because what the stress that we put on our students to memorize three disease states for a single test. I mean, if we're talking, oh, okay, we're going to have a test on three subjects coming up, and this is going to be one of five tests for the semester. Um, and it's going to be weighted, you know, 20% of your grade because we don't weight quizzes with these anymore. Uh, we're going to do hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and heart failure. And those are going to, all three of those can be in the test. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, how can you memorize all of this in that amount of time and retain it? Uh, I don't care if you know everything, but I want you to know the basics enough to know what you don't know and know your limitations. As long as you know that and you know how to research and find the answer, I'm satisfied as a preceptor or mentor. Uh, But if you try to BS me and give me an answer, and sounding confident and you're way off, I'll probably let you up. You know, that's the, uh, the best response a student can give. I don't know, but I'll go look it up. Yeah. Even I, I, when I was doing my residency interviews, I feared the time where they would be asking me, the board would ask me a question that I didn't know the answer to, especially because I was looking at ID mm-hmm. and if you work in ID, you know the the data changes year to year, and it is uber specific. And it's uh, it, it was it was HIV as well. And this is before the new therapies came out. I was feared that they would ask me a question I didn't know, and I didn't realize until later that they're kind of expecting you to say, "I don't know," because they're the specialists. They've done this for years. They know the data. And they're not expecting you to know, but they want you to be humble enough to admit it. So that's all I want my students to do too. Be humble enough to admit you don't know. You're younger. Understand your limits. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, one of the strengths of medicine and one of the perils of medicine, depending on how you look at it, is that the the skill set required to be successful in didactic training mm-hmm. is completely different, in my opinion, than the skill set that's required to have success in your clinicals, but then also as a professional. Mm-hmm. It's it's just like you were talking about. I actually, I, it'd be a whole separate podcast episode maybe to talk about your thoughts of how we're transitioning to online classes and open book. But I, I don't think it's disastrous because high stakes testing, whether you're talking about the SAT or the ACT or, um, you know, the LSAT for, for law school, there's ample research out there that high stakes testing does not correlate to mm-hmm. performance in your profession. And I think the ability to just memorize immense amounts of information when you're in med school, PA school, nurse practitioner school, nursing school, pharmacy, um, it doesn't necessarily make you a good clinician. I've got people I went to school with, and I'll be very careful, you know, here I don't want to name names, um, that were, you know, top half of the class, brilliant, spent hours and hours studying, would get hundreds on every test in PA Mm -hmm. school. But as clinicians, they, you know, are maybe very middle of the road because Mm -hmm. their ability to think critically, their ability to take an incomplete 
picture and then, you know, use logic to figure out the best differential diagnoses, that's not memorization. It's a completely different skill set. So I I do agree. I think the value, the role of clinicals for the student, we talked about the benefits to the preceptor, but I think for the student, the goal is not to memorize. It's not to become an expert, but rather be able to know when you have limits. Mm -hmm. Because I agree, the most dangerous thing in medicine is you only, you don't know what you don't know. So one of the most important things as a new graduate that you need especially as we're seeing growth of, you know, APPs, PAs, NPs, pharmacists getting more autonomy and scope. Mm-hmm. As we're, we're putting out more non-physician providers that don't have eight years of postgraduate residency, um, we need to make sure that we know our scope, we know our limits. And I think clinical rotations with a good preceptor, with a good mentor is how you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really so important. I want to, I want to ask you about that specifically. Let's get into story time here. All right. I want to know as a student, tell me your best experience or where maybe you had an enlightening moment with a preceptor or um, previously unknown passion that you found out in, um, in your rotations as a PA student. I just want to mm-hmm. know one of your best stories. So I think the best story that I have, um, and I'm, I'm going to throw this one back to you because I'm curious on the pharmacy side, it's always nice to get mm-hmm. different professional perspective. But in PA, um, most PAs are women, the majority in the US. So men that go into PA school very often gravitate towards emergency medicine mm-hmm. or orthopedics or surgery. You know, that's kind of the jock specialty. So all the guys go into that and it's got a, a very, you know, masculine culture to it. So in PA school, I was convinced that I was going to do orthopedics. I was, you know, an athlete in high school, was very into, you know, fitness. And I figured that that was a natural fit. Well, obviously, look at you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm a god. Mm -hmm. And my first rotation after didactic was in mental health. I did it at the inpatient PTSD clinic at the VA. So I, I had an interest in military medicine because I was in um, planning on doing Army Reserves to pay for school. So I, I knew I was going that path. So I had an interest in it, but I really didn't have any interest in mental health or psychiatry. It was just a, you know, check the box rotation. And I fell in love. It was just incredible. It was my first rotation. So maybe I had a little bit of that, you know, hey, I'm out of the classroom. I'm actually doing hands-on stuff high. But it was amazing. It was just so cool that in psychiatry, you got to get to know these people. It was just such a human side of medicine where you had these people in a 21-day PTSD program, and I got to sit in, sit in on group therapies and talk to, um, you know, Korean war vets at the time because this was you know, 12 or 13 years ago, so there was still a good number of them around. Um, in, in Vietnam vets that were bonding with Iraq and Afghanistan guys because, you know, the... Um, you know, the, the war was very similar in the sense where you didn't know who the enemy was. So a lot of mental health difficulties can come from that when you're entering villages and you don't know where the bad guys are. Mm-hmm. You know, very different from World War II or a more traditional war. But just getting to hear their stories and see the, the human side of mental health, it really made an impact on me. So when I graduated, I was still thinking orthopedics, surgery, ER, and I interviewed for a couple jobs. I had a couple offers and the, the offers were okay, but you know, it, it wasn't really something that was getting me, you know, super passionate or exciting. And my wife actually encouraged me to apply for a mental health job mm-hmm. because I liked this rotation so much. So she said, you loved psych. Why don't you apply for it? Within five minutes of my interview there, I knew I was home. 
Mm. And I've stayed at that job. I've been in that same job for 10 years now. So I think if I had not had a really positive experience in my mental health rotation as a student, I probably never would have even considered applying for that job. And here I am making an entire career out of mental health. Mm. How about you? Yeah, I, I think it was very similar. I had different ideas what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be um, a community pharmacist. The mm-hmm. uh, pharmacy chain I currently work with uh, was the first job I ever had was at this grocery store. And I, you know, I'm not going to say drink the Kool-Aid, but that's what they say about this place. It's, it's uh, a very, uh, man, I want to say well-loved um, grocery chain in this area. And everybody, anytime anybody comes up this, I got to go to this grocery chain and I'm going to leave names out of it for now until later yeah. on, until we get to know each other. But, um, I was a cashier did maintenance at front end, um, management type stuff. And then I got into the pharmacy and I was like, Oh man, I'm just going to keep riding this. I, I love where I'm at. So I never even considered residency. Mm-hmm. And then when I started going to my rotations, uh, I think it was my third year. I got placed at this uh, at this clinic called Trillium, and I will mention this one: Trillium, which is uh, previously AIDS Care of Rochester. Mm. And the physician who started the clinic, his name is Doctor Valenti, William Valenti. He opened this clinic in the early '80s, and this was during the AIDS crisis. And he was one of the only physicians um, that was publicly treating these AIDS patients when nobody else would. And so he had a passion for it. Um, This is just the beginning of the story. It's a little bit longer of a story, but I learned more about uh, HIV and AIDS than I ever would have thought I would have in school. Uh, We learned a little bit about HIV in our ID sections and uh, therapeutics. But when you start to meet the patients and you start to meet the other providers and the mm-hmm. nurses and you, you sit on their group therapy sessions and the mental health that goes be, um, behind it, I, I saw the, the need for good communicators and people who are passionate about people truly, because it's not always uh, glam in these jobs, especially with, with AIDS at the time, um, still people now, I think still have an aversion to it. If they read a chart and they see how this patient has HIV and is currently, um, in AIDS, it's people get a weird feeling about it because they don't understand it. Um, so I learned a ton from the providers there. They're very open to talk to me about it. And I was like, wow, I, I think I could do this the rest of my life. I love the people. Um, I love that I'm learning about something that I previously just thought was, I w- I'll say, uh, growing up in a pretty religious uh, household, I what we thought about AIDS or what we were taught about AIDS in the past was probably... Uh, hyperbolic. And so I had an aversion to it um, on a sociological uh, viewpoint. But while I was still practicing um, in the church, I was in this rotation and I had to, I was conflicted. I didn't know what to think. And finally I met these people and I met the patients and I met the providers. I'm like, okay, no, 
what I previously thought about these people and about this, um, about this community is completely backwards and everybody has it wrong. And I wish I would have had that outlook sooner in my experiences, but it opened up my eyes to say, okay, what you think, you know, like erase it. You don't know sociologically what these people are going through. You don't know the therapeutics, start learning and better their lives and enrich your own. So that led me into saying, okay, I think I want to do ID. So I picked one rotation with a preceptor that didn't have the greatest track record um, at this hospital. And they were on the antibiotic stewardship team. And uh, this is a good and bad experience. So I'm going to save part of it for when we talk about some of our poor uh, experiences. <laughs> but the good side of it was I was with the ID specialist team with one of the major hospitals. Uh, I will name job here. It was Dr. Stephen Fine and Dr. Mark Shelley uh, in Rochester, New York. I rounded with them for six weeks uh, on ID patients. And let me tell you, uh, they were so willing to discuss as attending physicians and ID with a, a student, a fourth year pharmacy student on rounds, asking me what I thought, asking me for the recommendation that I would give. And let me tell you, when you have an attending physician who's working side by side with you for weeks, you are going to know your crap and not because it's rubbing off on you but because you want to make such a good impression, you want to not look stupid in front of other med students, uh, in front of other residents, uh, fellows, attendings, that you're going to know your stuff. So it challenged me. And I learned more in that six weeks than I think I did in any semester uh, in school. So while it was one of the most challenging experiences I've ever had, because I spent more time getting there early and charting my patients uh, you know, sometimes getting there at four in the morning just to chart for hours before we met. Uh, they challenged me to be the best I can be. And they never even said it. They just, you could tell they expected it. And they gave me a, a chance to prove myself. And I was, I was up for the challenge. So what a great experience. It, it, it ended up, I ended up working in, in uh, the field in ID in a way in, in a hospital as a, as a clinical pharmacist. And that is only because of this one six week experience, I believe. So a, a little bit longer of a story, but man, the passion was ignited and you sometimes don't even know what you want to do until, um, until the finish line is just in sight. Absolutely. But I mean, that does lead us to, uh, is it okay if we talk about a, a story that might be a little bit more challenging or do you want to go yeah. right to something else? No, I think uh, let's maybe shift and maybe we can both exchange some stories as preceptors mm. um, of experiences that we've had, because I think telling stories um, from our own personal experience can be very helpful just to, to help people understand how beneficial precepting can be, not only for the student, obviously clinical aspects of medicine are so, so important. Um, you're going you're to have to tell me if I'm rambling, just so you know, because my well, you wife. always ramble, John. I think that's what listeners are here for. Well, okay. Well, there, <laughs> there is a limit because my wife has found it and she'll say, John, you're doing it. And I'll be like, oh, I've probably mm -hmm. been talking for about 10 minutes, haven't I? So you can, you're going to be, you can be my video wife. Shout out to Sarah for editing and producing our podcast. <laughs> so Sarah, if John is rambling, make the cuts. So I'll tell you a story. So I, I think um, I have a good one for you. So 
I had a student that was with me and she was a nurse practitioner student in psychiatry and she was one or two months away from graduation. So nearing the end of her, her clinical time and we were in a visit and usually what happens is I see patients in my office with it being psychiatry. We don't have exam rooms. They just, they come into our office and I have chairs. So the student has, you know, is just sitting with us. And out of my periphery, out of the side of my eye, I see the student on her phone. And I was like, ah. So, you know, my initial thought was, okay, maybe maybe she's looking something up. Maybe, you know, she's trying to look up a drug. Either way, this isn't a bad look. So I, I was unsure whether to say anything. I was like, ah, I don't know. You know, I don't want to be that, that guy that is super, you know, persnickety and, and, and cranky. But so then after the visit was done, I said, hey, you know, I saw you were on your phone. She's like, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, a couple of my friends just texted me asking me if I could go to dinner tonight. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, let's talk about how unprofessional that is. And she thought nothing of it. You know, she, uh, we talked about it. I, I kind of chided her. I said, this is so unprofessional, you know, especially in mental health. Any field of medicine, that would be unprofessional. But in mental health, especially where, where patients are vulnerable, um, you know, where the discussions are, are often very sensitive to, to look like you are disinterested, even if you were looking something up, even if you were on up to date learning about a drug, it's a bad look. And she really didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I mean, she was respectful, but she's like, oh, no, people do it all the time. You're just it's it's a generational thing. It's fine. So I made the decision of calling the school. I was, you know, bothered by it. So I called the school and had his, had a discussion with the school. It was a big, long thing. And the school addressed it with the student. And uh, it ended up, I think, working out okay, where, you know, the student didn't necessarily feel like there was bad blood. It didn't make it awkward um, between us for the rest of the rotation. But I, I like this story because I think it's a really good example. So often I see students where the preceptors take them, and even if the student isn't very good, they just circle five out of five on their evaluation, mm-hmm. and they just pass them through. And I am such a big believer that your clinical rotations in medicine, this is where you need to push yourself to the limits as a student. This is where preceptors should be aggressively looking for constructive criticism, because if I have a student and they are going to have a shortcoming, I want them to identify that when they still have a safety net. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to be a new grad, you know, working in a rural urgent care with no backup, whether, you know, regardless of what profession, physician, PA, NP, nurse, mm-hmm. you know, working in a setting where they're out on an island, they don't have the the support that you have as a student, and then learning that they are falling short in critical areas. Mm-hmm. So I, I think as a preceptor, it's important that we're brutally honest with our students in a constructive manner. We want to make sure that we're giving them good feedback if we identify something either in clinical knowledge or even in their professionalism that we address it. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, I have students come through sometimes the, the most basic conversations that we have to have. You know, Gen Z now is starting to come through these clinical rotations and we have to have conversations about, you know, appropriate office attire. Um, thankfully though, interestingly in, you know, this is a whole side note. I think millennials are worse than that than Gen Z. Gen Z actually seems to be better about dressing professionally where millennials Mm -hmm. really struggled with it. But Gen Z, it's interesting because every generation is so different. Gen Z is much more comfortable and less formal. So I think there's more difficulty of having students understand the importance of 
you know, being formal and cordial in email correspondence mm-hmm. or, you know, making sure that if you are texting or calling your preceptor that you do so in a professional manner. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, it, you can't just, you can't really be completely yourself in this professional field in the mm-hmm. sense like you, you can be yourself personality wise, but there is a, there is a demarcation that every professional in the healthcare system understands that you don't go past a certain level or you get to a certain level and you don't go below that until you go home. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I had I a think. guy who had that too, who he mm-hmm. used to come to um, rotations. I kid you not every day in a three piece suit, <laughs> three piece awesome. suit. And he yep. wore these, these, uh, what do you call them? The wingtip shoes. Uh, and I said, every single day I see him, I'm like, Hey, you are making me look bad. You need to cut it out. But yeah, I mean, all that to say like that is, this was a Gen Z-er. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. No, it's so strange because Gen Z, like millennials, you'd have people showing up in, you know, yoga pants and, you know, baggy, you know, shirts that, you know, okay, maybe, but, you know, in a professional setting, it's kind of borderline. Gen Z, I feel like they they dress much more formally. They they don't really have the issue of what's loungewear, what's formal wear, what's workwear. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how those things, even just year by year, you can see these little changes and subtle mm-hmm. alterations in, in professionalism or attitudes. Do you have any, uh, stories of your precepting experiences that, uh, maybe provide a, a good lesson for people that might be interested in getting into this? Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about one of the books that I read as well. Uh, this is more of a, a cautionary tale where I, so first of all, people who know me, and if you don't know me as a pharmacist or even a preceptor, I do have different levels of who I am in those different areas. So people who know me outside of my work know that I'm uh, a fun guy who likes to push the boundaries, make things uncomfortable. It just my sense of humor is sick. And when I go to work, it has to, you know, you got to back that down. And even more so when you're a preceptor or mentor, you really have to be as professional as you can, uh, because you need to be able to bend your personality to where you are. Now I have extremely high expectations for my, for my students, uh, more so than probably most of my colleagues. And that may be because of my experience. I've got a very diverse experience and I know where uh, advice can go wrong and right. If you give the wrong advice, Uh, it can be critical to somebody's health uh, immediately. So you have to know your stuff. If you don't know it, you better find out real quick. So I have very high expectations. And I had this one student who was very shy. would not speak up unless spoken to directly, would not give any more feedback or answers than what was expected, uh, found the answers to what they needed to find. And once they found what seemed to be the right answer, that's all they would do. Uh, And my expectations is that I want multiple resources. I want to see that you know what a bad literature is. I want you to be so biased in literature. I want you to show different uh, possibilities of outcomes with different uh, journals. And if you do the bare minimum, I'm going to ride you. So I remember this one 
a student I had, she was very quiet and uh, she had expectations that she was going to go great places. And I saw her saying these things, but I saw her work and I saw her personality and what she wanted to get into. You have to be very personable. You have to be extroverted in a way too. Even if, like you, Mike, you're an introvert, but if people didn't know you, they would think you're an extrovert because yep. of how you present yourself. Sure. You, fl- you flex well with that. Well, if you want to be uh, in a position that you have to communicate all the time, you better be a good communicator if you want to be successful. Well, this, this student was not there. So I had just read this book and I read this book called Radical Candor, How to Be a Kick-Ass Boss. And it's going to be in the show notes. So the problem is, folks, is I only read half the book before I started talking to this student. <laughs> and I found some really good information and guidance on how to deal with these types of situations only halfway through. Had I read the rest of it, I would have been a little bit more you know, subtle. But I sat this, this student down and I said, listen, um, this is what I'm seeing. This is where your goals are. And what I'm seeing is your actions and your goals do not equal out. You will not make it where you want to go. It's not going to happen until you shape up and do better and meet the, these expectations. You will not get hired by this company. You will not make it. And I was just, that was radical candor. I said, I'm sorry to say this, but I'd rather just tell you now so you can work on it. Uh, and there were tears. And I, although it was good information, I could have handled it better. Uh, the student did take take a tart and she's doing exactly what she wanted to do. And she's doing wonderful. But uh, it took, that was a hard conversation to have. It's hard to watch somebody cry, but sometimes... Um, Somebody need some of these students just need very hard uh, life truths to make it to where they want to go, and so that's what I think precepting is. Fifty percent of the time is showing them a mirror to, to show the patient, or rather the pre, uh, preceptee, the mentee. This is who you actually are. Get out of what you think you are. I'm going to show you where you line up, and. If you can be a good mirror to them, you, you're a successful preceptor. Yeah, and I think uh, that's a, that story is another great example of why mentorship is so important because the the whole value of precepting and having that that layer of mentorship doesn't end when you graduate. Mm-hmm. I, I think all too often, especially so obviously as a PA, I'm I'm heavily involved in. Um, advocacy. I'm I'm involved with the New York PA Association, and the big hot topic for PAs and NPs is autonomy, um, not scope of practice. Autonomy. I think there's a distinction there, um, and a big part of that is that as a new graduate, you need to recognize that you don't know jack. Mm-hmm. And the argument is not whether new graduate PAs or NPs or even pharmacists, because pharmacists I think are in a similar boat where their their autonomy is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not whether you are a subject subject matter expert in everything day one after graduation, but rather are there appropriate checks in place and appropriate, you know, fail safes in place at a clinical level, at the practice level, at a institutional level, or even within professional societies that can, you know, function better to appropriately manage scope of practice and autonomy than regulatory 
um, you know, things that are maybe inflexible and hard to change and hard to adapt to certain situations. But a new graduate professional, in, regardless of, of what field you're in, should seek out mentorship. I always tell my PA students when they're graduating, do not take a job that pays you high, high money right out of school, but won't give you the level of mentorship you need because your first three to five years out of school, you know, PAs and NPs, we don't do residencies. So your first three to five years out of school are critical because that's really where you're going to learn your craft. You're going to hone your skill set. And if you're in a job that is just going to put you out on an island and not provide you that mentorship, just like you're describing, then you're not going to be as good of a clinician. And that ultimately is a disservice to you. You know, it's going to make your career less rewarding, but it's also a disservice to patients where there may be concerns for, um, you know, less than ideal outcomes or just poor, um, less opportunity to provide the best quality care, the best quality access for patients. So to that point, uh, when I graduated, I didn't get to land a residency. Uh, We will talk about residencies and postgraduate work in another episode so I can tell some more of these residency stories. Um, but I did not get to match. I did not match and I couldn't scramble. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to San Diego. Um, I also had an opportunity to go to Tacoma, Washington for residency, but we had just found out that we were having a child. And so we, we couldn't go anywhere. Um, we had a big family here. Granted, if we didn't have a kid, I probably would be going to residency. Um, so what had happened was I had to figure out my, my pathway. I ended up getting hired for the meantime by a big box retail pharmacy. And, oh man, this is a good good story. I want to really dive in someday on this one. But the long story short is I was an hour and 20 minutes away from my home in the middle of nowhere in one of the smallest towns in this area, uh, full of drug abuse in this town. Uh, Cops were always in my store because belligerent folks or um, drug seekers. So many arrests were made out of my store. It, it just seemed unreal. This is not where I imagined my life to be going. Uh, I had zero development uh, from the company I was working at. And I had asked and asked and asked. I said, hey, listen, I, I really want to do this, 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 and this. I, I, I would really like to get some help with it. Uh, can you give me some help? Like dead silence. Nobody gave me anything. And I got about a year in, I said, there's I'm leaving healthcare. Uh, I started interviewing for sales positions in medical devices, um, other sales positions. I were uh, I was going to be going into a compounding type facility as one of their healthcare experts, and I was interviewing for everything outside of what I went to school for. And what a shame! And it had nothing to do with my true view of what my. Uh, my career path was supposed to be or what the pharmacist position is had everything to do with my employer and the opportunities to develop. Uh, Mike, I think you're right on the money. I think too, too far or too, for too long, at least our students or even me as a student are looking at what is my prospective income if I get this job or this job? Um, I wish my, my eyesight would have been more clear uh, because it doesn't matter how much you're making, it matters where your passion is. Because if you're passionate and you're doing it for the right reason, you can make additional financial gain from just doing your job very well in a passionate position. And we will talk more about that because we'll be getting into contracting, we'll be 
getting into um, work in the same uh, line of healthcare, but also outside of it, um, just extra income. And so please stay tuned for that episode coming up. Uh, but just to reiterate your point, find a, find a company, a mentor, uh, find a position where, you know, you're going to be developed. Uh, we can talk about interview questions in another podcast as well and how to interview well. Um, but let me, if I may, I'm going to quote something. All right. So I found this quote in this article that was written in the, uh, HBR, which is the Harvard business review by uh, David Noir. I hope that's how you say his name, but hear me out. And this is on, is on mentorship. And I think this really reflects what we're talking about. So quote, if the mentorship is a transactional nature, has a transactional nature, meaning you are the only one learning something new, it will eventually fizzle and be less valuable in the long-term. Mentorships with a transformational nature, on the other hand, can help both of you and your mentor prepare for a fast-paced future, no matter what career path you want to pursue. And then he went on to say a little bit later in the article, someone with whom you can build a relaxed, inspiring camaraderie driven by curiosity as opposed to the binary instructor-student exchange, as we have seen in the past or what we're all used to, as long as there is a mutual desire for personal and professional growth. So that's where I really want to land here um, as we talk a little bit more getting into a study here, but you have to have the um, ideal outset of we both want to grow professionally, this collaboration style. Okay. There is a study that I found out of the Netherlands where they reviewed 69 articles from 11 different countries spanning uh, about 25 years. But 65% of the articles in this review were from 2010 forward. And it really talked to the emerging trends in, in healthcare. So the title was Mentoring the Work, the Working Nurse, a Scoping Review. And, and now it specifically talks about the, the nursing programs that are out there. I'm trying to open up the link. And I'm having, <laughs> yeah, there it is. Um, Sam, I'm, I'm doing some of this on my, my Apple, uh, uh, what do you call it? iPad, the iPad pro or whatever. Right. And I was always used to Androids and I know I'm so cool when I walk into coffee shops or any sort of meetings with this and open up and it looks like what I'm, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I feel like an old person now. The fact that my kids all have iPads, uh, granted to, to stay out of my hair sometimes, but they all have these iPads and they know exactly what to do. And they're telling me, like, I always thought that the older generations were out of their minds when they say like, oh, these young kids, they can just whip onto a computer. And they know it's like, no, we are now in that stage, Mike. Our kids are going to know way more about technology. Than oh, we yeah. We've, we've entered that for sure. My eight-year-old definitely surpasses my technological <laughs> ability. <laughs> Um, but anyways, this study uh, really just evaluated different programs in, in either nursing schools or healthcare systems that were established. So these mentor programs were part of the um, organizational growth model, and they evaluated how many people were in each of these programs, what type of program it was, how often they met, 
um, what the expectation was is was uh, a rather was from the outcomes. And for example, some of the goals of these programs at the at forty three percent of the articles was strengthening a type of clinical care. So whether that be ICU care, so they might have a mentorship program within the ICU departments. At say we could we want to strengthen the ICU care and burn trauma units. Let's make sure these new nurses pair with some of the either an NP, a PA, uh, or an ICU nurse from another field, whether it be cardiology um, or step-down units. So that was the majority of them. And then second down was 16% of them was to promote promote evidence-based practice. So I would say that's very similar to the first one. Uh, But further down, it started waning at promoting retention um, and new graduate nurse transition to practice. So it sounds like those two were more uh, regarding, let's make sure our workforce stays here, um, which is not necessarily a good reason to have a program. You, you can't you can't start from a reactive base. You have to start from uh, uh, you have to promote something. You have to um, dream a little bit. So I think that's what they're doing when they started some of these programs about strengthening uh, clinical care, and the majority of these programs uh, had zero to 10 mentors in the programs. Um, but it, the studies in, in how they measured this were pretty bad because unable to determine or unspecified amounts were 58%. It sounds like a lot of these programs were kind of elective and you could choose to go in. It was just an option as part of uh, some of the uh, hiring practices. But um, the what I found was interesting about this study was the duration of mentoring. Now, when you think of a mentor relationship outside of a preceptor, I think I really do see these things as two different models. Mentorship, I think, is continuing on as you go to new positions, as you're considering new options, you're reaching out to this mentor saying, hey, I, I now need to bounce this thing off of you. Can you tell me what you think about it? Or even getting their, their idea on a specific clinical question where a preceptor is for a specific purpose, for a specific time. Um, in a specific framework um, that is usually limited to that scope. I think preceptor relationships can move into mentorships. Uh, and you know you, that will be natural. You're not not every preceptor relationship has to move in that direction. But the majority of these mentorships were intended to last a year or longer. That's thirty five percent of them. And as the time from went down to six months or three months or under three months, they kept going down to percentages from 19 to 10% to 9%. Uh, so as a mentor, your, your relationship with these people should be focused on uh, longevity and how we, you can grow uh, for each other. Now, there was this other review. I'm sorry, I think I said Netherlands. That was the um, nursing program review. This other review was based out of the, the Netherlands, and it was... Uh, a very small study, but it really went to depth on what the perception of mentees and mentors were and how you can identify what you believe to be what you believe to be a positive or goal-oriented mentor relationship. So I'm going to put this in the show notes. You can read it yourself. It's very interesting. But in the end of this all, they identified that there were four types of mentors. There was the facilitator, the coach, 
the monitor, and the exemplar. So I'm going to read this out to you really quick. The facilitator, uh, facilitators aim for a service uh, providing. So in meaning that you are there to meet the needs of the school. You're there to provide the service of being a preceptor. That is it, or a mentor. A coach tends to focus on development support. So as a coach, you're realizing that this is a big environment in the healthcare system, and you're just one cog in the wheel of trying to provide support for the student or this mentee. A monitor, I, I like this one. Um, I think this is where I like to fall in line with. A monitor, however, interacts with their students on a more collaborative level and helps them recognize and track their progress. So when I think you mentioned this a little bit before, Mike, where you might actually have a question as a mentor that you don't have the answer to. And so you give it to your student or your preceptee and ask them to find the answer for it. And then you can develop a clinical, expected clinical outcome or progress for a patient based off of what they find. And you can do that together. Now, that is where I think the growth actually happens. And maybe you can tell me differently or give me an example of where you've seen that. But that's where I learned most as a student is when they gave me free reign to say, hey, listen, this patient has an infected joint. They had these infections in the past year. Um, this is what we've tried so far. Now, we need to figure out what we need to give next. It's like, oh, crap. They're already busy working with uh, these other intensive patients. They're relying on me to find the answer. And they truly were relying on me. You, If you're put in that position and you know uh, what that means to be asked that question, you're going to find the right answer, right? And that's collaborative. Like You are learning, but also you've been given the opportunity to say, okay, they trust me with this. And I'm going to do my best job ever. I, so I, I like that monitor relationship. And then the exemplar is um, they don't have any clear preference for whether they're providing service or development support, um, but they more uh, lead towards a nurturing or directive monitoring. So uh, I think that the monitor is my preferred style. And you can look at that, that link to really see, go a little bit deeper to see what those outcomes look like when you pick one of those or identify one of those types. But the last thing I will say about this is their conclusion of the study was awareness of the mentoring position can be can help mentors understand why they act the way they do in certain situations and how this behavior affects their mentees' learning and development. So if you're aware that you only want to be in this as a service provider, as like uh, you're, you're, maybe your work makes you precept, right? Because you're getting free labor from somebody, you're not going to be passionate about it. And you're going to better understand why you pawn them off to have library days, you know, three times a week, go ahead, go have a library day, finish your longitudinals, write up the papers you have to write up to make to finish uh, the basic needs for this program. Um, if you recognize that, maybe you're okay with that. Um, okay. I think you're a crappy preceptor and I think you're a crappy mentor and you probably shouldn't be in it like make space for people who actually want to do it. Um, but at least you know that and you can recognize, okay, I'm either going to change my style and do a service for our, our upcoming healthcare professionals, or um, I'm going to give this up to somebody else who, who can do it better. So recognize where your biases are, um, how you're thinking about this. And um, I think, 
self-reflection in this area will better serve you in the future because then you don't have to spend this time and energy with people that you don't want to train. Um, or you might see that your passion has has kind of left. And this is a great way to spark that passion again, is to become responsible for a new practitioner. Um, well, I talked a lot, Mike. What do you think about those? Man, I think you wrapped it up pretty well there. So I'm really excited that this is uh, not a topic where I would expect it to be resource heavy, but it sounds like you've got some really good book recommendations, some research that people can look at too. So I, I think to to kind of conclude or wrap it up, I want to remind res- listeners that as always, we will be putting the show notes on our Patreon page. So if you go to www.com, Patreon, patreon.com slash WRCT. We'll have all of our show notes. We also have a blog. We're going to be, uh, you know, putting content up there. Um, supporters of the show, which can be as little as $5 a month, will get access to all of our show notes. The The idea behind that is we want to do all of this amazing research and then share it with you so that you can become better professionals, better clinicians, or also, you know, use it for whatever purpose you have, you know, share it with your friends, share it at work if you're negotiating salaries. So John will put up all the information he had, including some really great books that uh, it sounds like maybe a good start if you're looking to become a better preceptor or get into it. Also in the show notes, John, I see looking at it, it looks like you've got some information on how to become a preceptor, where to get, you know, connected with different universities and other affiliations. So I think we're out of time today, but we'll uh, we'll tease that. Check out the show notes. Yeah. And in, in, in short, really, it's um, I won't go very deep into this, but uh, there are reasons to do it. Um, there are also great, uh, resources like Mike mentioned earlier, that if you become an adjunct faculty as a preceptor, sometimes they give you that, uh, that title, you get access to their library, which means usually PubMed, UpToDate, ClinFarm, uh, Lexicomp, some of those paid services that some, some employers cannot afford. Uh, there are some stipends available. Uh, some schools will give a small monetary amount for each semester, uh, that might pay for things like a new stethoscope or a new a new resources or coffee, if you want, whatever, whatever you want to use it for. Um, and then even as an adjunct, adjunct uh, faculty member at that school, you have a lot of benefits, uh, including reduced CEs, uh, CE costs rather. And there, I will try to find, there's this one great CE program that gives you a certificate of preceptor, uh, preceptorship where it teaches you how to be a preceptor, um, gives you guidance on evaluations. Uh, I will find that. I had to complete it for the faculty position I was with. Uh, so that will be coming up to be posted. I'll try to put some more books in there as well. I'll try to get some other recommendations for other folks that's had it. But um, there's plenty to talk about with these relationships. I'm hoping that we'll be able to visit this uh, again in the future. But uh, before we go, Mike, as we always do, I need to know what you have been uh, drinking, eating, reading, learning, watching. Oh, man. So right now, uh, we've talked about it previously uh, on episodes. So I really love outdoors activities. Mm -hmm. I like to do adventure type of stuff. I think there's probably, we could do a whole episode of why I think hiking, climbing is just the perfect activity because I'm a big believer that, you know, as you age and get older, Sure, going to the gym is healthy. You know, we we know there's ample documentation of physical and emotional benefits from exercise. But I think when you can do some something that is uh, physically exertional, requires a mental challenge, 
and uh, it's something that you love, you know, it can be a really awesome hobby and activity. So now that we're transitioning out of winter, it's April right now. Mm-hmm. So we talked earlier, I did some ice climbing. So now we're kind of shifting over to warmer weather. So my five-year-old is turning six in two weeks and he wants to do his birthday party um, at the climbing gym. So we're getting that all set up, but I'm excited because my goodness, I, I don't know if you've ever taken your kids climbing, but uh-huh. like the things that they do up on the wall that just look so natural when they, yeah. they start at a young age, it's like, man, how did you know to, to position yourself like that? Or how yes. did you, how did you know to, to, you know, lean your body in to, to change the angle? So I'm really excited. Uh, you know, if, if they like it, great. If, if not, I, I'm not the parent that's going to force them into activities that mm-hmm. I want to do, but it is fun as they grow up and kind of come into their own to see them, um, enjoying activities that I, I also love. So we're gearing up to do a climbing birthday party in the next few weeks for a, a very excited six-year-old. Awesome. Yeah, we, uh, um, oh man, I want to talk about what we've been watching. Okay. At least what I've been watching. Uh, I like to be outside. I live outside during the summer. Um, I live in upstate Western New York and the winters are arduous and the springs are short. Uh, but when they come, usually you get excited and then it snows again. So I've been excited a few <laughs> times. It snowed a few times afterwards. I got the grills out and everything, but um, I will be talking more about that in the future, of course. But uh, I've been watching this show on Apple and man, it is trippy. Okay. It makes you question things. It's almost as if, uh, what was that show with, or that movie with Jim Carrey where he uh, the Truman show. Remember that yeah. one? Mm-hmm. So the show is called severance and I have to, I don't remember the name of the main character, but he's been from parks and rec and you, he, you've only ever seen him in sarcastic roles in these, these shows, but he plays a serious character. And the idea is that these people go to work and they get to a certain level within this company where they can choose this, uh, this procedure, this uh, surgical procedure called severance where they do this, they, they implant this chip in the brain that separates your personal life from your work life. So as soon as you get into the elevator going up to your floor, there's something happens in between where it turns the chip on and you are a completely different person in your workspace and your work person doesn't know anything about your outside person and your outside person doesn't understand anything about your in person. Okay. Your any is what they call them. And it gets trippy. It is, uh, it makes you uncomfortable. Uh, but I suggest every, if you like that type of psychological thriller ass type drama, it's on Apple. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, promoting Apple at all. I don't get any money from that, but <laughs> Apple, if you, if you do hear me, um, Steve jobs, if you're up there, throw me something down, you know, some kudos, I'll throw some uh, new views your way, but severance, um, on Apple TV is something I'm, I'm really enjoying. Uh, awesome. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's probably this podcast. Um, if you have any questions, you can post them. Uh, please email us. And uh, Mike's already mentioned our Patreon. So uh, hope to see you on there and hope to see you next time on White Coats of the Round Table. All right, I'm Mike. Uh, I'm John. I hope to see you guys soon. Have a great day. Thank you.